and begins in verse 14. Uh, when the hour came, Jesus and the apostles reclined at the table. And he said, I have earnestly desired to share this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves after he had given thanks. And he said, for I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread and gave it to them and said, after giving thanks, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. But behold, the hand of the one who will betray me is with mine on the table. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several uh, years ago, you may remember uh, some of the controversy over uh, the Da Vinci Code. And uh, one of the controversies that came following the Da Vinci Code was looking at the Da Vinci uh, portrait of the Last Supper. And so some began to hypothesize that in this picture with everybody uh, at the table, uh, that actually Da Vinci himself had painted Mary Magdalene into the picture. But as it turned out, that wasn't really the big scandal at all. The big scandal we've come to figure out is Da Vinci had it all wrong. When uh, when they ate uh, the uh, Passover meal, very likely they ate just as John the Baptist and others in the Essene community uh, who would have given Jesus the room in Jerusalem. They probably ate the way they ate. And they ate and tables that were not just one long table, everybody on one side, as if they're posing for the picture. But actually, it's a U-shaped table called the triclinium because it's in three parts. And generally, you would have 12 people there at the table, 9 to 12 and they would eat in groups of three or four, and they would all share a bowl of uh, of, of the food uh, together that they would or dip that they would uh, put their uh, bread in into. And so there could be three or there could be four, and they would be around this table. And usually, wherever the host was, dipping the bread in the same bowl with the host was usually the guest of honor. And so scholars have begun to think about it, and of course there's no 100% consensus. But the suspicion is very likely that the two chief guests there with Jesus in the bowl with them are probably John as the youngest, who will get to ask the question, why is this night uh, different from every other night? And then the other, the real guest of honor, by the way, in the place where he's sitting, is Judas Iscariot himself. How interesting that at this Last Supper, this Passover meal, the one who will betray Jesus is given the seat of honor. The one who will actually break the covenant made at this sacred meal and, and dishonor the movement of freedom and liberation and everything that the Passover stands for, he is the one chosen to be the honored guest. Why was he the honored guest? Uh, perhaps he always sat in that seat because he was the treasurer and every organization knows that the money men are really important. But I wonder if it was something else. And so it leads me to think about a couple things this evening when we look at that U-shaped table with Judas next to Jesus dipping their food in the same bowl. The first thing it does, it's, it's a warning to me. 
It's a warning because Judas is not just a special guest on this one night. Judas has been eating every meal, more than likely with Jesus, for three straight years. The rabbis and their disciples hung out 24-7. They hung out together when they ate. They hung out together uh, when they were in the bathroom because there was a prayer that you wanted to make sure the rabbis said and you wanted to learn it. Uh, they, they hung out every place together. They traveled on the road. They bunked in the same place. So Judas was more than a one-time guest. Judas was family. So it's a warning to me because it reminds me that it doesn't matter how long I've walked with Jesus or the proximity I think I have to Jesus in my life, there's no guarantee that I might not also be able to fall and betray him. There's no amount of Bible studies. There's no weekend retreat so wonderful or six-week course you take so amazing, a conference so fascinating that it will vaccinate you against the possibility of betraying the Lord. It's something that we have to be ever vigilant about. Judas, 24-7 for three years, and yet he still betrays him. So it raises the question, well, why did Judas betray Jesus? I suppose the scriptures give hints. And one possibility is maybe he did it for the money, the, the so-called uh, the 30 pieces of silver. It seems to me to be the least likely of the reasons. And one of the actions that we know Judas takes following the betrayal of Jesus is he will take this money and basically return it to the temple. He will, he'll, he'll get rid of it. He's not going to keep it for himself. Uh, the scriptures say in a couple places, including Luke, that Satan got in to Judas. And so Satan may be the cause of the betrayal. And, and I'm certainly not in any position to argue with the scripture about that one. But it seems to me that one of the things that I think we can probably say scripturally is that Satan typically only gets in places where we leave the evil one a door or a crack or an avenue, and that, uh, and that Satan can't just, without permission, begin to take some sort of hold in our lives. And so uh, I used to have a little cartoon I would keep on my desk, and it, it went something like this. Lead me not into temptation, for I'm pretty good at finding it myself. And it reminds us that we play a role. We can't, you know, we can't just blame the evil one for this. So then, if, if I'm right about that, then it makes me wonder, well, what was the open door for the evil one? What, what, what gave Satan an opportunity to get into this picture? And my, my best guess is expectation. That Judas wanted something and expected something from Jesus that Jesus did not and would not deliver. Now, this is speculation, but it's shared by a number of uh, scholars and commentators, so let me try it out on you. Judas is from Iscariot, and that's why it's called Iscariot. It's for the town Ishkarot. And Ishkarot is in the, what we might call the, um, where the old southern tribes of, of Judah and the neighborhood around Jerusalem is located. And there were a group of people who very much advocated the overthrow, the bloody overthrow of Rome by terrorism and any other means necessary. And their fervent prayer was that God would send a Messiah king to lead them to militarily conquer the Romans. But most of the outposts of these zealots tended to be in the Galilee area. 
area, uh, places like Cana of Galilee and Gamla. Uh, later, uh, they would hide out in Masada. But there were places that were known in Galilee that that's a zealot stronghold. These are people that want violent overthrow. But there was only one town, as far as we know, anywhere near Jerusalem that had the same sorts of people. And the town was Ishkarot, where Judas was from. And so... The reasoning goes that it is likely that Judas could have been a zealot, which means what he wanted more than anything else was for Jesus to be a military messiah who would rise up and lead the revolt against the Romans and shed as much Roman blood as possible. And so when Jesus didn't meet these expectations, one of two things happened. Either Judas didn't believe, well, obviously, if he's not going to do this, he's not the Messiah. Let's make way for Barabbas or, or any number of other Messiahs. There were at least 18 that claimed to be the Messiah uh, even before Jesus came, who were crucified by the Romans. So let's, we don't, I don't believe it's Jesus. Let me betray him. Let me get him out of the picture. Let's get Barabbas or somebody else in here. That's a possibility. The other possibility, some people say, is that Judas actually did believe in Jesus. And so he thought, if I can back him into a corner, if I can get him in, in a bad enough shape, confronted and surrounded by the Romans, then he will call down legions of angels from heaven and he'll do what I always want and expect the Messiah will do. And so some people say Judas betrayed Jesus because he did believe and Jesus as the Messiah, but a different kind of Messiah. It is interesting that when Judas takes the money and returns it, many people say the way he returned it actually was in accordance with a passage from Ezekiel. So even in the last act of Judas's life before he hung himself, he was fulfilling a scripture as best he understood it. So maybe he wasn't a non-believer, maybe he was a believer, but either way it didn't matter. Because whether he didn't believe or he did believe, he had the wrong expectation for the Messiah. He wanted Jesus on his terms. And so that opened a door, I think, for betrayal. It reminds me that you've probably heard this phrase that in many ways expectations are uh, resentments and waiting. They're, they're disappointments that are just uh, waiting to happen. They're queuing up whenever we have expectation of someone. We just give them that opportunity to disappoint us and make us resent them. And so one of the things I learned is that, that just like anyone, just like Judas, my expectations of Jesus can move me into a place where I will be less than faithful. And so that's the warning that I have this evening. But I also there's something comforting to me to know this, that when Judas, uh, before Judas leaves Jesus, he eats this sacred meal with Jesus. He's included at the table. The one who would betray is the guest of honor. And lest we want to judge Judas too harshly, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, they talk about Judas and, and Peter gives a speech and he said, well, you know, Judas took his own life and he went to the place God had for him. It's, all, it's almost as if Peter's going to say, I don't know what happened to him, but I'm not going to judge. Because there's a sense in which Judas is not the only one who betrayed Jesus. There were James and John who at the Passover meal, this wonderful meal that the Messiah who came to serve, watches them argue about which one of them is the greatest. There's Peter who will leave the Passover meal and deny that he even knew who Jesus was three times. And then there's the rest of the disciples who when Jesus is carrying his cross and being hung on the cross, they are nowhere to be found. 
There's a famous story a hundred years after Jesus' crucifixion about a rabbi named Akiva. And when he's being crucified, he recites the Shema while he's dying, which is why many observant Jews recite the Shema at their, at their death uh, to this day. But what's fascinating is his disciples ask him why he is doing this. Jesus' disciples can't ask him any questions because they're nowhere around. You simply can't divide the disciples into the ones who betrayed Jesus and the ones who didn't. Nor can you divide the body of Christ into the ones who betrayed and those who didn't. Because every one of us has our moments when our expectations of Jesus unmet drive us to take action in our own hands that betray the trust that we claim to have in him. You can divide the world a lot of ways, but you really can't divide it into people who are betrayed, who betray Jesus and those who don't. Nor can you divide it this way, people for whom Jesus died and those for whom he did not. Betrayers all, he died for them all. I've heard it put this way once, that the greatest miracle of Holy Week may not be just that Jesus died and rose again, But maybe it's this, that Jesus died and rose again for the very ones who crucified him. There's a place at the table for them, and there's a place for us.